Well, hello there. The clock is about to strike 5 p.m. here, British summertime in Beat Jeepers. It feels like summertime this afternoon. Scorchio in Salford. Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Radio Show. Please consider joining me in message form. Drop me a message via the website, via the app. I'd love to hear from you today, so I would. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, blogger, citizen journalist Patrick Walsh from Kilkenny will be on the programme a little bit later on. Second hour, can't wait for you to meet Patrick. He has done, performed some stellar work on excess death numbers in Ireland. Yes, since the vaccine rollout. You don't want to miss Patrick Walsh. We'll talk to him a bit later on. Before that, our pal, friend of the programme, Stuart Waiton, criminologist, PhD, lecturer, author and columnist. Stuart will be on the programme to talk about the persistent attacks on academic freedom. There's interesting news. We'll catch up with Stuart this hour. That's Monday's programme. And I think I've already told you, I've told you twice, thrice, thrice, you can join in via the new app, Richie Allen app, the Richie Allen Show app. Leave a message, it gets directly to me in the studio or use the website richieallen.co.uk. Come here and I tell you, I'm really excited. Giovanni De Stefano will be on the programme tomorrow. He was the subject of a recent Sky documentary on Sky Documentaries, the channel. Very interesting documentary indeed. And he is currently filming with uh, the Irish, the great Irish director, Jim Sheridan, is doing, uh, you know, a kind of, um, I suppose, what would you say? It's Yeah, it's a documentary, but a really in-depth look at Giovanni Di Stefano. I'll find some time a bit later on in case you haven't heard of Giovanni to tell you who he is and what's been going on in his life in the last 10, 12, 15 years. But uh, he's on the programme tomorrow. It's going to be fascinating. That's tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, he'll be on about 5.30 tomorrow for an extended conversation that will be compelling. I have no doubt it will be. Right. So, lockdown saved as few as 1,700 lives in England and Wales in the spring of 2020. Says who? Says a landmark study by scientists from Johns Hopkins University and Lund University. They looked at 20,000 studies on measures taken to protect populations against COVID across the world. Now, the findings are completely and wholly unsurprising to you and me. We knew this. We were saying this back in 2020. But I suppose it's just about kind of edging into mainstream now. The Telegraph has covered it. It was given a mention on Sky News this morning, but largely the broadcast media is ignoring this. This is very serious, right? The benefits of lockdown were negligible compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. That's a direct quote from this uh, new survey. And Johns Hopkins University, by the way, is one of the most respected medical schools in the world. So this is not, again, not bombshell to you and me. It isn't new. We've discussed this for three years, that the lockdown killed people and hardly helped anyone. We said this, right? We knew. Now a major medical school is saying it. And I tell you, they have been 
Well, they haven't been backwards in coming forwards with regards to the rhetoric used in the conclusion. The debts saved were a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. That is a direct quote, right? So this is big, right? But it isn't getting much take-up, as I said, in UK broadcast media. The Telegraph has also recently revealed that a secretive government unit worked with social media companies to take down posts which were critical of lockdown policies, posts which were made by esteemed academics everywhere. Again, this isn't news to you and me. We knew this was going on back in 2020. So it's fascinating. Let's get some reaction. Paul Murray of Sky News Australia was in conversation today with Ian Collins. And he was in conversation with Ian Collins on Talk TV, Paul Murray. What, What has always sent me crazy over the past couple of years was if you chose to stay home because you didn't want to interact with the society because you thought there was a chance that COVID might come into your house, then okay, it was your option to sit it out. But it's when the government told you you had to sit it out, that it didn't matter if you worked outside, it didn't matter if you were a small business, it didn't matter if you were a kid, that stuff is unforgivable. And I'm pleased that this survey comes out today. I'm pleased that you're talking about it. We will, of course, on the other side of the world in a few hours' time. But where's the government saying sorry? Where's the, the royal commissions? Where's yeah. the former judge turning around saying, all right, let's put you all up and uh, and go through this like we're going through, uh, you know, Prince Harry's treatment in the news media? Indeed. And we spoke to people, you know, obviously in this country, we spoke to lots of businesses. People were calling in in the, you know, the hundreds every single day who were, were affected by this. But we crossed over to Australia many times, spoke to small businesses in Brisbane, Melbourne, Perth, Sydney, wherever it happened to be. And it was the same story. You know, people's livelihoods decimated, just finished, snuffed out. You, you, you cannot run a small business if you have to close it down for near on two years. Well, you know, I'm sure that the, uh, you know, uh, our Zoom connection may drop out in the next moment or time because I'm about to throw a truth bomb, but here's the truth. It seems like many governments around the world view the future of their populations being you either work for the government or through welfare you're dependent on the government or if you run a small business you service the government and anything else is surplus to needs. It's absolutely vital that these essential workers that are in a heavily unionised profession, they're allowed to go to work. You want to open up a shop, you want to have a fish and chip shop, you want to be a person who uh, uh, speaks against the government on the internet, bang, you're gone. I mean, the madness in Australia also was in part fueled on by this sort of disaster porn that was playing out online. And it felt like, you know, it felt like if, if I can go back sort of 20 years. And one of the things that freaked everyone out about September 11, myself included, was the scenario of, um, anything was a weapon and everything was a target. So everyone starts working out, how do we siphon up? How do we siphon up? And the problem with this was that the same logic that was used to fight sort of global terrorism was brought into our own homes and strangely people cheered it on. People think that they're, you know, I don't know, sort of, you know, they're the uh, people who fought World War II because they sat at home and watched Netflix for two years. I'll give you the tip. You're not. You didn't. Yeah, journalist Paul Murray from Sky News Australia speaking with Ian Collins now. Ian has been in touch. He says, wasn't it John Hopkins putting out dodgy studies funded by Gates et al, supporting the whole scam from day one? Possibly, Ian, Imperial College in London, Imperial College London, and your man Neil Ferguson were largely 
we're at the forefront anyway, at least in um, February, March, April 2020. Yeah, but of course, I, I'm sure people working for Johns Hopkins University did put out dodgy data too. And of course, that matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but now they are saying, I mean, let me give you one quote just in case. I forget to give it to you. I meant to mention this a moment ago. In fact, one of the quotes that came out of it was that the stud, that, that lockdown in 2020 was, this is a quote, a policy failure of gigantic proportions. Gigantic proportions. It was Ferguson from Imperial College London back in March 2020 saying that if the UK didn't lock down or impose some measures, there might be as many as half a million deaths uh, he predicted there might be two and a half million deaths in the United States. This is very important because maybe some of this, even though we've known about this since 2020, we're not stupid, this isn't new. And some of you might say, well, the Telegraph, Richie, you might say, well, legacy media, mainstream media, puppet media, you might say limited hangout. Yeah, of course it is. But this stuff is out there now. It's a little win. It's a little win. Landmark study from an imperious medical school is saying the lockdown maybe only saved 1,700 lives. How in the name of God have they managed to come to that figure anyway? I suppose I'd, ha- I'd have to read the report, not that I would be able to. Too many three-syllable words for me, dear listener, you know. But they're saying 20,000 studies were taken into uh, consideration to come to this conclusion. It's interesting. I'm also a bit sceptical because part of me, and you've heard me say this on this programme, I don't believe that lockdowns were in the pipeline in the next two to three to four years anyway. Do you get what I'm saying? Even before this study, I've been saying to you, I don't see lockdowns happening again. Oh, you're naive. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I think they're going to advance their agendas more and more and more increasingly as time goes on with the climate hoax. That's how I see it. That's how I see it. doesn't mean I'm right, of course. I'm often bloody well wrong, but it's how I see it. Thank you for all of your messages. I'll get to more of them in a moment. We might talk to Stuart Waiton about this shortly. Stuart is a notable academic, a very accomplished academic. And him, I mean, he knew this anyway, but seeing this in black and white from this this um, huge medical university, and then in the same week, you know, people being told about a secret government unit that was set up to try and destroy the reputations of men and women, preeminent scholars in the field of virology and other ologies, right, who they kept off the air in 2020. So these are the times, but maybe. Anyway, on this theme, on this theme, he says 30 people might be paid £1,600 a month to do nada, to do niente. Let me qualify that in a minute. With, with no obligation, basically, as part of a proposal to conduct the first trial of a universal basic in- income in England. UBI, universal basic income. Right, 1,600 quid, 30 people. Now, dear listener, you might be thinking, right, so they'll cease all activity, will they, Richie? No, 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 they will be given a 1,600. The idea, you see, if the universal basic income ever comes to pass, and it will, or at least there are those who want it to come to pass, it will be given to everybody, regardless of your wealth. Now, you might say, no, 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 please believe me, I've looked into it. The plan for universal basic income is to give everybody 
a thousand six hundred pounds a month or whatever the figure might be uh, two thousand pounds a month or eighteen hundred pounds a month or whatever right regardless of what what your financial status is so this is uh, autonomy autonomy is a think tank and it wants financial backing to do this two-year pilot program to see how it would change the lives of the 30 people who were given this money this £1,600 a month. So people who supported anti-poverty groups or groups set up to deal with and help people who are in extreme poverty, they say this can simplify the welfare system and it'll tackle uh, poverty, right? So the concept of this is government paying all individuals a set salary regardless of their means, which is what I tried to explain a moment ago. Set salary for everybody. You will get this much every month no matter what. And uh, like I said, lots of lefty type supporters of this today. Brilliant, it'll make everybody secure and nobody will be hungry and all the rest of it. Right, so they've had two years of community consultation and this has taken place in central Jarrow, which is in the northeast, and east Finchley, which, if memory serves, is in London. Let's get some mainstream media commentary on this and... I'll go on for the crack. Only, only I allow myself one a week, one a week, one a week. Uh, LBC Radio's James O'Brien, he must be delighted. This, this to me, may be one of the biggest stories of our of our time together. The biggest stories of our time together. Potentially, in terms of the size of the tree that is likely to grow from this relatively tiny seed. The tree that is likely to grow from this relatively tiny seed. A universal basic income that will run for two years and will involve 30 people for two years, every month, no questions asked, will be given £1,600 a month. A no, month. No questions. Think of the difference that would make to Michael. Apparently he had some bloke on called Michael who was struggling financially at the moment earlier. Our first caller. I mean, I mean it's, it's stunning. It's a really interesting sum of money as well. Isn't it? And if everybody gets it, including the very wealthy people, and everybody gets it, what do you think that will do to inflation and to prices, James? Just wondering, asking for a friend. Because people who earn 10 times that every month will be receiving their orders now to start raging and raving about how it's completely unsustainable and how is anyone ever going to be able to... To pay for it. but He I means Tory politicians. People who make ten times that money will be ranting and raving and decrying it and screaming against it. Well, maybe they won't, James, because they know that uh, the, the status quo will just endure. If everybody gets it, what difference will it make? Prices will increase. The cost of living will continue to grow at the same rate it was growing before you introduced the universal basic income. So the £1,600 will really mean squat all to the poorest people in society. You can't be that thick, really, are you? I think that a universal basic income is probably inevitable. And the crucial, crucial, crucial word here is universal. So everybody gets it. That, that kind of makes it a bit stupid, really, doesn't it? Not in this scheme, obviously, this is just 30 people, but what they're looking to measure is the difference that it has upon people's lives. And it'll have no difference on people's lives if everybody gets it. £1,600 every month. East Finchley, goodness knows how they've selected these two places. Jarrow, which is one of those places in the northeast that it's very hard to name without doing the relevant accent. I could manage quite fine. Jarrow. In Jarrow, in the northeast. I find. Jarrow? And... East Finchley in North London. David Brent, eat your heart out. What else does he say? Now, I imagine 1,600 quid goes a lot further in Jarrow than it does in East Finchley. You take all of the money and all of the people and you just give 
£1,600 to everybody in the country. The richest person in the country and the poorest person in the country and everybody in between. How dumb is that? And then the money that's left over is redistributed according to where it was before. So the richest person in the country is still the richest person in the country. They've got £1,600 a month extra that they're not going to need or notice. And the poorest person in the country is still the poorest person in the country, but they're considerably less poorer than they were before. Now, I know that might sound naive. Oh, it's very naive. But that's why I'm looking at the numbers first rather than the philosophy. Because if something like this doesn't happen, what, what happens to us all? What happens to our society? What do you mean what happens to us all? Says a guy who's paid a six-figure salary for talking bollocks on the radio four or five mornings a week. They don't, they either don't get it or they really are shills in every sense of the word shill. They either don't get what this really means. What this really means is the government taking ownership of everybody. A universal basic income being rolled out at a time when jobs are basically ceasing to exist in every sector, in every sector all over the world, not just because of artificial intelligence, of course. Leave that aside, right? The financial sector is going to be exclusively run by by programs, by machines, by computers. Millions of people work in finance. They won't be working in finance anymore. There won't, there won't be anything to do, right? Automation, right? We could talk about... Um, we could talk about, um, uh, yeah, ma man manual jobs being taken over increasingly by, by, by automation. And there was one other sector. Ev everywhere you look, right, jobs are disappearing. So the universal basic income, as they're talking about it, would be here's £1,600 on top of the salary you already earn, which is ridiculous. But let's leave that to one side. And then the salary you already earn is gone. There isn't any other way of getting a job because there isn't any jobs. There aren't any jobs, I should say. So now you're left with your £1,600 universal basic income, right? And then the government introduces a central bank digital currency or a centralised digital currency, a digital pound. Cash ultimately disappears as it is disappearing. It's virtually gone. It's nearly gone. And then you're in a situation whereby you are owned lock stock by your government you are owned and held in i don't know it's a perpetual prison isn't it you are you are enthralled to you are a slave of the manufacturers of the owners of the central bank digital currency and any time the managers of or the owners of the cbdc don't like something you're doing or saying they can turn that tap off like that can't happen it's been happening it's been happening time and time again over the last 10 years i had a paypal account shut down many others had paypal accounts shut down because of their opinions the canadian truckers people had their accounts suspended on the orders of the canadian government suspended to prevent them bringing food uh, bringing water, bringing amenities, bringing the necessities to the Canadian truckers when they were on that major massive protest against lockdown and, and against the, uh, the, um, the whole COVID tyranny. People were told, no, 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 we'll just shut you off. We will, we will compel your bank to prevent you from sending your money to these truckers. So, so this has been going on, like I said, it's been going on even before COVID. Does, does James O'Brien understand this? The concept of a universal basic income is not to make everybody comfortable. 
It's to make everybody dependent on the government, completely dependent on the government, where every financial transaction, every single one of them, is monitored and evaluated and is measured against a set of rules and regulations. He did what? He spent what? He, d- he went where? Ah, well, we'll punish him then. We'll punish him. We will freeze his account or we will deduct money from his account. That's where it's going. And that's... Um, the sad reality of it, universal basic income. It's preposterous, even from the beginning, from the outset. Let's give everybody £1,600 a month. You know, there isn't an economist in the world who could explain to me how prices would not go up. Inflation wouldn't rise in that scenario. But anyway, let's leave that one for the moment. Uh, Brendan O'Neill is the editor of Spiked Online. And he's written a book about how language is being controlled to change how people think. I'm not going to plug the book, um, but uh, he was speaking to Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer about it. And he, he's interesting in what he says here, and something that we, we see a lot and read a lot about and hear a lot about, particularly on social media. Listen, We're living in, you know, we do live in a pretty mad time in which people say the craziest things and are expected to believe the craziest things. And if they don't, then they are punished. They can be no platform, they can be banned, they can be sacked from their jobs simply for saying that only men have penises and that women don't. So I think it's it's a classic example of uh, uh, compelled speech when we're forced yeah. to say something like her penis, even though the vast majority of us know that it's not true, yeah. that those two words should never go together, and that if we're going to be reasoned normal people, you would only ever say his penis. Yeah, if you were reasoned normal people, you would only ever say his penis. Good point. Control of language is used to control thought. So the more that people say her penis or the more that they use so-called preferred pronouns when you refer to a man as she or her, what you're actually doing, people say that it's just about being polite. You know, Stuart Lee, the comedian, once referred to political correctness as institutionalised politeness. But it's not polite to say something that you don't think is true and to say it under pressure because you know that you might be cancelled if you don't say it. Actually, what it's about is controlling language in order to change how we think. So if you change the language around around sex and gender, you change how people think about sex and gender. If you change the language around climate change, so it now becomes climate catastrophe, climate apocalypse, you change the way people think. You make it more difficult for people to say, look, we can deal with this. It's a pretty straightforward problem. We've got the the brains to do it because if it's a climate apocalypse, there's obviously nothing you can do. So I'm interested in way the incremental language changes that are taking place in society and the impact they have on freedom of thought itself. And that's why I think it's really important to defend those things. Yeah, and this will rage and rage and rage and rage this one. 23 minutes past the year. Thank you for your comments thus far. Mark says, Mark, I didn't. I don't know who that is, but thank you, Mark. I hope you're well. Hi to Eileen and to Andy. Is that right? Is it Andy and Eileen? Uh, hi to Chris. Hi, Chris. He says, you made me listen to O'Brien's anecdote about ice cream in Thailand. <laughs> Very good. I've always got that song in my head, Chris. Hi to Phil. How you doing, Phil? Um, you send me comments about, you make me laugh, some of some of our listeners make me laugh, they send me comments about BitChute documentaries and brand new tube documentaries as if I would have seen them, as if I would know these people. I don't know anybody and I don't watch BitChute, I don't watch brand new tube, I don't have any time. I spend nearly 80 hours a week on this programme. But thank you for assuming that I'm spending time watching BitChute and brand new tube and God knows what else. I'm not, I don't have the time. So um, if you want to send me a link to something, send me a link, but 
I don't know who these people are. Uh, Coco says, it was always my worry concerning lockdowns about people suffering from domestic abuse, stuck at home with a violent partner, kids forced out of school, at home all day, exasperation, dangerous situations. Bless these people, she says. Thank you. Hi to Laura, who says, what I do not get is how the government makes money if there are no taxpayers. There are approximately 40 million working aged people in this country. That is over £7 billion a month, asks Laura, with several question marks and exclamation marks. I don't know either. And Alexandra says, Richie, you are right about the dangers of the universal basic income and central bank digital currencies, but how do we oppose the cashless society apart from raising awareness amongst uh, people that are clueless and and, and continuously using cash whenever possible? I just don't know. I do not know. Because everywhere I go, people are using their phone to pay. In many places, you are not permitted to pay with cash. I met some friends in Media City in Salford yesterday, Andy and Alvaro. They might probably not listening today. Hi, Andy. Hi, Alvaro. Um, great pals. Met them yesterday for the first time, but I've known Andy a long time. And um, we were chatting about this. I we, we went to a particular pub in the Media City and they don't take cash. We went to another one. They don't take cash. It is card only, contactless only. Take it or leave it. You know, what do you do? Take it or leave it. Do you make a one-man protest and say, it's really, really warm, it's really lovely, it's really sunny, it's lovely down by Manchester Ship Canal, it's fantastic. I'll just throw my toys out of the pram and I will go home and not have a good day because I'm not going to comply with cashless. I mean, what do you do? I don't know what you do. Should I have gone home and not had a pint? I had a pint anyway. In fact, I had three. This is the Eagles. When we come back, Stuart Waiton, academic PhD. He's everything, Stuart. Columnist, lots to talk about with him. Patrick Walsh later on from Kilkenny. I think it's just a matter of fact that those songs sound better when it's warm. I think the... I'll cut it short. It's a, it's a terrible thing, terrible sin, mortal sin to do that to Eagles. But I've done it anyway. I want uh, a bit more time with Stuart. Stuart's a friend of the programme, so you know who he is. A terrific writer, broadcaster. He's a criminologist, PhD lecturer, author. Well, he's many hats he wears. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend Stuart Waiton. Stuart, listen, welcome back. Your academic freedom and the... I suppose the relentless kind of pursuit of of those to kind of limit academic freedom. Let's talk about that in a few minutes in depth because I'm very interested in what's going on in Scotland. But there's a couple of obviously very big stories which I'd love to get your thoughts on, uh, Stuart. The Johns Hopkins University study. So it's one of the most respected medical schools in the world. I can say that without fear of contradiction. It is. And it's performed an exhaustive study looking at 20,000 other studies and surveys on measures taken to protect populations against COVID. And it's come back and said that lockdowns were negligible in terms of the positive impact they had and that they did far, far more harm. And some of the language is staggering. Policy failure of gigantic proportions. And the reason I'm putting this to you is because in the same week, the Telegraph released some information that I kind of knew anyway. And that was that there was a government unit set up to basically go after esteemed, many times esteemed academics who were taking anti-lockdown positions. So you put all that together. This is a big moment, isn't it? Well, we'll see. I I mean, the way this seems to work, which really concerns me, is that I was just just before I came in, I was listening to... uh, 
Radio 4 just before the news and an, a little advert came on for a programme they're about to do on conspiracy theory and how conspiracy theory over COVID, uh, is it becoming dangerous and so on. Now, as you know, I, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I think there was strong arguments against conspiracy all the rest of it. And I thought, well, all right, that's fine. You could do a programme like that. But are you also doing a programme on what was wrong with the lockdown, you know, and what, what else came out of that discussion? And of course, I suspect the BBC is not particularly keen on doing a, uh, a programme along those lines. And I get very frustrated by the way the BBC in particular construct the news around themes that they think are the correct themes and then don't go on to um, analyse things that they're less comfortable with. And and that is the, uh, the modern way that, if you like, news bias develops around that kind of framework where, you know, if, if they have, you know, some three environmentalists do something in Southampton, it'll be on Radio 4 News, but you could get hundreds or possibly even thousands of people doing something different and uh, you never hear about it. So we'll see. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, I have to say, what you've just said about um, the lockdown um, and the that more harm than good. I think it was fairly clear from relatively early on, relatively, that the, this was a um, something that was going to harm people that were old and frail and the rest of the population were, didn't really have that much to worry about. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll see if it becomes news general rather than just news that, um, outsiders, if you like, are talking about. Yeah. And what you said there, by the way, lest anybody jump in with two feet, isn't the same as saying, just let the older folks to their own devices and die. Um, you didn't say that, but people, people always read into that. In fact, (laughs) at the outset in 2020, two Oxford academics, Sinetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan, they were saying the traditional approach to a new respiratory pathogen in the, in the environment, in the population is to try and get the youngsters who are far less likely to be harmed by it, to get them to, to contract it as quickly as possible. Because ultimately then it'll spread through the young and it will weaken as a result of that. And while you're doing that, you're making sure that the older folks, like you, like you said, Stuart, who might be a bit more susceptible to it, you make sure that they're, you don't lock them away, but you make sure they've got their supplements, their vitamins, and that they're a bit more robust uh, to it. But he was one of those that was shut down by the secret. I mean, it sounds, it sounds Gestapo, it sounds China. In fact, Jacob Rees-Mogg has likened it to China. What what's gone on in, in, since uh, since twenty twenty in this country? And you know, you mentioned conspiracy theories, and I I love the fact you come on because you will know that I have some theories that you might think are outlandish or others might think I don't think they're so outlandish. But I think at the very least, I think there are groups of people in the world, there are stakeholders, there are I don't want to use the term globalist because I'm an old lefty. I don't really know what a globalist is, but there are those who they do want to shape society and change it and make it a bit more controlled. 
And yeah. when something like the pandemic comes along, at the very least, I think some people see it as an opportunity to maybe do things they couldn't have done in ordinary times. And that's kind of where I am at, at, at the very least. But uh, I, I would I would completely agree with that. Completely agree with it. And and I'm an old lefty uh, and I would. But I think the term globalist is is quite useful now, uh, increasingly to try and describe the people that run society. Because, I mean, I, I was brought up my bread and butter was understand the people who ran society, which I think was largely true at the time, we talked about 30 years ago, was the establishment, right? That was the old establishment, the, the capitalist elites, if you like, they ran society. Whereas now I think increase, it's increasingly clear that the people who run society are the, the, the new elites, if you like, the kind of the intellectuals, the experts, and so on. And I absolutely agree. I think um, that you can look back, which I find fascinating. If you look back at the World Health Organization, even when it was set up in, I think, 1946, sometime around then, the definition that they used for health was a really broad definition, which wasn't really what most of us would think of in terms of health, but was about our behavior and how to make people behave in the in a correct fashion that they thought was was right and significant and i do think you can find a lot of documents by a lot of these organizations and institutions that are quite sinister and i mean i've been reading stuff which i still find um a, a bit sort of jaw-dropping about i think it's do they call it sexual education or sexual i can't remember the exact term now but they don't talk about sex education now they talk no. about sexual education and there's a whole raft of documents come out of these international organizations about uh, sexualized education and talk about children in a sexualized fashion. And, you know, you're scratching your head thinking, this is fascinating and really quite disturbing stuff that this stuff's been put out by the most respected organizations, supposedly, uh, and to a certain extent being adopted um, across you know the western world to a certain extent so yeah I, I i i wouldn't necessarily disagree with you in terms of um the only thing i would say is that i think what you have to do is you have to prove it prove you're right um and that's where i find conspiracy theories problematic that it becomes a kind of a, an alternative dogma so you know i think you need to be enlight as enlightened as possible and as knowledgeable as possible and be prepared to then say, okay, this, these are our findings and then throw it into the public realm and have a discussion about it. And then hopefully we'll move forward. That's, that's how progress should develop. And I would have agreed with that for most of my life, but let me just briefly pick you up on two points there. Um, the problem is you, it's very difficult to find, you know, irrefutable proof when it comes to certain things, particularly because when you ask questions, you don't get answers. Like, for example, you might be or might not be aware that the Bilderberg Group met in Portugal last week. Now, this, of course, is fabled in conspiracy research, the Bilderberg Group. But um, ultimately, when you think about it, Stuart, right, it's, it's fairly sinister. Over three days, um, world leaders, secretaries of state, heads of state, and some of the biggest um, um, corporate CEOs in the world get together to talk about shaping the world and None of this is published. None of this is questionable. Journalists are strictly forbidden from, 
you know, reporting on it or, or not, not forbidden from reporting on it, but they're not invited to take part in it. And I remember only one MP in the UK has ever stood up against it. Michael Meacher. Remember Michael Meacher? He passed away a few years ago. The environmental guy. Um, and that's one. And then, of course, you have the World Economic Forum. So I hear what you're saying, like it's difficult to prove. But as journalists, it's hard to work with proof when you do ask questions about it. You're, con- you're immediately labelled as a crazy conspiracy theorist and, and, and you don't get any answers. And, and then you're kind of left with your hands in the air going, well, well, will somebody please ask what's going on in these meetings? I mean, none of these people are elected and yet they're making decisions that are going to have profound implications for me and for you, Stuart, and the students you teach. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but it's, you know, it's, it's not so easy to provide mm. proof, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a, it's a fair point. I mean, I, I just think a lot of the time um, we try and find sort of easy co- uh, solutions. You know, s- s- this is happening. Someone must be purposefully trying to do this. But I just think it's much more complex than that. Um, and, and I think a lot of the time the people that are doing things are relatively clueless. Um, and it's almost like the, the bigger problem is that there's a vacuum in society and a, a vacuum of kind of ideas and coherence. And it's filled by these so-called experts with their new types, you know, the, the evidence base, their research and so on. They, they churn this stuff out and, they, and it hides an ideological dimension to it um so i do i do think there I, I wouldn't i wouldn't be overly critical all the time of conspiracy theory but i just think ultimately you have to try and win the argument with the public that's what you have to do but you know that's what your show's about isn't it you try and have you try and do it yeah exactly i'm i'm compelled to say this quickly um i will give you the last word on this of course but i always do um but Here's here's where I've been frustrated over the years, right? Back in 2005, there was a terrorist attack in London and 79 or 80 people were killed on a bus and at two tube stations. But on the evening this happened, on the very evening, a guy um, was interviewed by ITN News called Peter Power. And he's a um, security expert and he managed um, training for, for security and stuff. And he said on ITN News, and this is true, I'll provide you with this later on, not that this is of any interest to you at all, but I'll provide you with the, uh, the audio. He went on ITN News and he said um, to the presenter, he said, would you believe, he said, that we were running a drill in London today. Um, we were imagining um, an attack at the same locations where the attacks took place in London today. We were imagining a scenario and we were actually, we had you know, people working it and play, playing it out and acting it out. And he said, um, we were doing that. And the ITN guy nearly had a heart attack. And he said, are you telling me at the, at the same locations? And he said, at the precise locations. Um, I That's haunted me for, what is it now, 18 years, Stuart? 18 years. A guy goes on telly and says, we were running drills in the same stations where these bombs went off. We were running drills about bombs going off in those same stations. This has never been investigated. So I don't have any answers for 2005 and I don't, you know, I'm not one of those, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm rational, reasonable and that I'm a, a journalist. So I can't say what did happen. And that's where some people probably fall into a big hole and dig a big hole for themselves. But um, that, 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 that deserved to be global headline news, didn't it? Well, it's, it certainly should have been investigated and yeah. shown whether there's any factual basis to it. Def- yeah. I mean, the, 
unquestionably that sounds like something that should have been investigated. Yes. Yeah, we'll leave that there. Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> one. Anyway, I'm, I'm fascinated by what's going on in your profession. You sent me an email last week and just for our listeners, the Scottish Funding Council is an organisation that is, um, well, let's just say, as you said to me, universities in Scotland are taking their lead on how to deal with racism from the Scottish Funding Council. And you said to me that you think a lot of this that's coming out now is not reasonable or a reasonable approach to racism or prejudice, but it's actually critical race theory. And you sent me this document, and I have to say, right, and again, I'm look, I'm not easily kind of shocked, but one of the things that stands out to me, just to explain to the listeners, at the end of this eight or nine page document, they categorise white people in, they, they divide white people into four categories, don't they, Stuart? So, yeah. so, so they say that every white person, essentially, is either a white supremacist, <laughs> you're either white indifferent, so you couldn't care less, you're white awareness, so you're nearly on the ball, you're nearly a good person, or finally, you are, Eureka, you are white allyship. This is mad stuff, like. And, and, and ultimately, it seems to me that you... Unless you can only achieve white, this sounds like Scientology, you can only achieve white allyship, you can only achieve that goal for yourself if you basically agree with everything that is said by the people who write these documents. And there is a thing in there about white indifference, and they link white indifference to somebody like maybe yourself who calls for the importance that we recognise the importance of preserving academic freedom. Now, you've said that to me on the programme before. You've said, Richie, it's very important to preserve the freedom of academics to, to think and to talk and to open up discussions. But you're a white indifferent and you're nearly, you're nearly a racist. <laughs> going by this stuff. Well, well I, I think white indifference fits within the, you know, you've got four categories Two of them are bad, two of them are good. So white white awareness is you getting there and white allyship is, you know, you're on the side of the angels. But white indifference and white supremacy are the racists. So I I, I essentially think here yeah. they are saying for all intents and purposes that if you believe, if you have a passionate belief in academic freedom, you have white indifference. In other words, you are a quasi-racist. Yeah. And this is by the body that funds universities and this is the body that universities have adopted um, for how they frame their policies and practices in their universities. So, you know, at the minute, universities will be having meetings with divisions and so on, and their equality, diversity, inclusion person will come along with some of this material and will explain to these lecturers that they need to decolonize their curriculum, that they need to become a, a, a white ally, um, and so on. So you've got this mind-boggling, bizarre situation that the very institutions that are supposed to be defending academic freedom now say, for all intents and purposes, academic freedom is racist. Right? And they've signed up for this. Now, it's hard to know if they've signed up for every little bit of it, but essentially they've signed up to this general call it racism uh, campaign. And it becomes embedded into university, human resource policy, how you teach, how you are meant to think. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's a form of Maoism that, 
determines how you're meant to operate in a university. So, I mean, I just think it's absolutely astonishing. It's uh, dangerous. Utterly astonishing that these, yeah. <laughs> the very institutions that are meant to be about academic freedom now have, for all intents and purposes, adopted this approach as being racist. Incredible. I, it is incredible. I, I remember attending Salford Uni in 2005, I think, 2004, and muttering under my breath at something one of the lecturers said, you know, my big chip on my shoulder, my big lefty chip on my shoulder, you know. And um, what was lovely was the uh, lecturer's name is Mike, and he said, what was that, Richie? And I said, uh, blah, 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 you're talking bollocks. And he said, uh, get up here and make an argument, he said. It's not good enough to sit there. And that's how it used to be. It was brilliant. Get up here and make a cogent argument against me. I, I read this, and I was just as dismayed as you are by it. And it seems to me that what they're trying to do is to create the space where um, what they decree to be the right approach cannot be challenged. That's what it's about really, isn't it? Because by saying, you know, that if you say that we should defend um, academic freedom, um, well, of course, what you're saying is, well, let's not accept everything as racism. You're saying, let's not accept, let's accept that there are complexities and nuances to things. Let's flesh it out and have a good discussion. And with this kind of language, they're saying, no, 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 this is the way it is. There's no nuances or complexities. This is how we see it, so this is how it is. And elsewhere in the document, they talk about um, going to great lengths to make sure that people with lived experience are in decision-making positions. Yeah. I, I mean, it. again, yeah. the lived experience thing is, is something that should concern people because, especially in the university context, lived experience basically means your anecdotal life is meant to be the truth. Right. And that's not how academia should think about things, nor should it be how we develop social policy. We should think about lived experience as one account, right? Whereas research and knowledge um, and, you know, intellectual endeavor and depth of uh, understanding is how you should think about things. And, you know, lived experience should be a tiny part of that. You know, it's, you can't, if you, it's, it's, it's essentially, I mean, this is the thing I keep coming back to all the time, that I would describe the, the nature of our culture at the minute is one that institutionalizes narcissism, right? So it, it takes as given that the only thing that is good is the, the, the individual and how they feel and how they feel about themselves. And that's validated. So we just constantly validate um, whoever it is that is, says that they're offended by this or that they've had this lived experience and so on. And the thing about lived experience is you can't challenge it. Right? So I remember being on a, a program but with one of the, these guys, uh, ex-football uh, player, Black, um, who said that, his his life was death by a thousand cuts because <laughs> his lived experience was every day was racism, and I and I don't believe him, right? But you know, can I, am I allowed to say I don't believe you, right? Because that's his lived experience. I mean, who am I to question his lived experience? You can't question someone's lived experience. You haven't lived that experience, so you can't have a debate, right? So it becomes a kind of form of mo uh, a kind of moral club that beats you and you can't then have a, no. a a kind of proper discussion about you know what what research is there really out there about racism how should we think about this and so on well Stuart hang um, on a second excuse, yeah. excuse the interruption aren't you entitled to say to the gentleman in question 
could you provide some examples? I mean, that's yeah. that, that's the immediate question that springs to mind. Well, but well, he, he would, you see, because he then says, oh, well, you know, when I'm standing in a station and a mother looks at oh, me. Oh, right. Microaggressions. Grabs yeah. her, the children away or when I'm in a shop and people start to grab their bags and all the rest of it. And, and you know, it's like, did did it, though? Is, it, is that why they were doing it? Is it real? Yeah. I mean, you know, what can you do with it? Because they're just you can come up with examples and the examples even still i'm sort of scratching my head thinking mm, yeah well perhaps perhaps not um anyway so it's one of those things but i mean if you read this document it's even got under white supremacy it's got belief that we live in a meritocracy right now i'm sure you know you could make all sorts of things about meritocracy so certainly in terms of you know wealth yeah right? so if you if you're rich uh, and your your kids go to a private school and and, to, and 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 so on and so forth. You could question aspects of meritocracy, but obviously they're meaning race related here. But you know, a lot of people think, well, in general, you could say yes, that's true. But still, you still have to achieve. People, some people have advantages and disadvantages, but you know, in general, you go for a job, you'd hope the best person gets that job, and so on and so forth. Right? Right? You can question it, debate it. But I certainly wouldn't have thought belief that we live in a meritocracy is white supremacy. You know, I mean, what's the point of a university, right? What's what is the point of going to university if you just think white meritocracy is? I mean, what's the point of getting a degree, right? What's the point of trying to achieve anything if, try, yeah. if thinking you can get somewhere on merit, right? So you get a first, and then that'll allow you to get a potentially better masters or and whatever it is you want to go on and do. So white supremacy, meritocracy, it's, I mean, it's mind boggling. And do you worry, do you worry that this is going to become basically in, this is going to become, not law, but that this is going to be accepted, that ultimately these ideas are going to be taken as fact, you know, that these beliefs or, or, or lack of beliefs in some, in some instances are, you know, proof that you're a white supremacist and you might need a bit of re-education. I mean, is that where this is going? I, I, I think we start to move to a situation where um, people accept uh, affirmative action to a certain extent. Right? So my brother, who's an actor, quite a few years ago said to me that his agent had said um, he should expect to get 70% fewer offers for work because they're given more and more jobs to black people and women that would normally have gone to guys, right? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulder and his wife said, well, what's what's wrong with that? As if this is not a problem, right? And they, I, I would classify her in particular, apologies to her if she ever hears this, but as someone who fits comfortably with the modern elites and their outlook and preoccupations. So for her, it, what's what's wrong with, you know, having black faces everywhere, you know, every other adverts, you know, black or mixed race family, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on and on it goes. There, what's the problem with that, right? We've had a racist society. Why can't we do this, right? Well, I, I have huge problems with it. I just think it's a different form of racism. Um, and I think it doesn't help. I don't think it creates connections with people. I don't think it sees a sense of commonality, which is what anti-racism should be about. Um, that we're all in it together, right? That, that's yeah, what yeah. anti-racism should be. I mean, this document describes 
colorblind racism, right? Where you just say, I don't see your color, I just see you as a person, which for me is the good sort of anti-racism. They describe that as racism, right? So if you're a kind of liberal or leftist from the past who says, you know, we should be all common and unite together, not see each other's color, just see us as human, that's racism. As far as these lunatics are concerned who are taking over the asylum, but, you know, the, the institutions that we all work for in academia in Scotland are adopting this, right? This is the correct approach as far as they're concerned. You're I don't know if you saw the, the yeah. maths thing as well. Um, do you know about the maths stuff? I'm on the, I've got it open here in front of me. I'm on the white supremacy to white allyship progression. Yeah. I'm on that, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the maths stuff is, <laughs> I mean, it's a laugh, but it's kind of, it's funny and stuff funny. So the QAA, which is the, I can't remember what it stands for now, the Quality Assurance Association, it's, it's the people who decide the basic standards of what it is to be a university across the UK, have uh, have told maths lecturers and professors that they have to make their maths lessons anti-racist, right? And you like think, right? Okay, so I've always laughed at this about this. How do you, this. How do, you do that? <laughs> exactly, right? So I'll tell you. So this is one of the suggestions they make. They say you should note that some early ideas and statistics were motiva motivated by their proposers' support for eugenics. Uh, some astronomical data were collected on plantations by enslaved people. And uh, you should know and tell your students that in the past, some mathematicians possessed racist or fascist views or had connections to groups such as the Nazis. Right? So that... How do you begin to even argue against that? I, I, I mean, basically, you have to teach your kids now at uni, apparently, that Adolf Hitler also did maths. Jesus. And it's like, you go, right, okay, uh, did Martin Luther King do maths as well, right? Yeah. All right, what about Nelson Mandela? Did did he do maths? Yeah. Or, you know. Rosa Parks. <laughs> John, John Stuart Mill. Rosa Parks, yeah. <laughs> and Frank, yeah. 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 It's like, what? And so what's really interesting about all of this and, and, and is the underlying worry is that what seems to be happening is that any of the gains from Western civilization, from, you know, the, the Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, the emergence of science, Newton's and so on, right? And on and on it goes. Every gain... Uh, of Western civilization is now being recategorized through ideas to do with racism, misogyny, and so on. And it does seem to be like underpinning the people that are pushing this is a kind of contempt and hatred of Western values. Yeah. Uh, and what we would see as kind of enlightened ideals. Um, and so they come out with stuff like this, which is so, I mean, it's so banal. And Well, you expect people to laugh, don't you? You expect you people to laugh out loud, but they don't. They, I mean, but by that logic, and I, I don't mean to be silly here, but I think, was it the Romans or the Greeks? The Romans invented the wheel. But imagine if they knew the person who identified the wheel and it turned out that he had um, sugar plantations in, in, in wherever, right? 
Are yeah. are you supposed to, you know, maybe reject the car then or the bicycle or? Yeah. Yeah, you meant to have square square wheels. I'm not even use the term <laughs> wheel anymore. I mean, imagine so. I mean, that's what it said. It literally said some mathematicians possessed racist or fascist views or had connections to groups such as the Nazis. What difference does I mean, that make? I mean, it's the sort of stuff that you'd expect from the the most stupid sort of student politician who would say something and everyone else would just laugh at them, boo, and, you know, you'd move on. But nobody questions them, Stuart, except people like you. Like, the obvious question is, right, so you're really, really unwell, okay, I've got this pill here. You're going to die in the next two to three weeks, but I'll give you the pill. But um, you won't believe who um, you won't believe who invented the pill. It was uh, Enoch Powell's son. <laughs> yeah, so you can die now in, in agony because you can't have the racist pill. But we, we're all like degrees of separation. We're all probably only nine or ten, maybe even less in some families, um, you know, degrees away from some idiot with stupid ideas or foolish or ideas or whatever. I mean, we yeah. all are. I mean, of, of course we are. And, well, and, and of course, it's historically moronic to try and look back at people who lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago through the, the framework of how we're looking at things. I mean, the good thing about this, the positive thing, is that there's a, a big long list of professors and lecturers have come out and done an open letter basically denouncing the QAA and saying that they're complete idiots uh, and that this is indoctrination and you shouldn't expect lecturers to be indoctrinating their students with this tripe. We should be trying to teach them maths. And that's the, I mean, I, I do think that's, I mean, that's the catch, the Scottish Union for Education, which I helped set up, that our sort of like byline, if you like, is education, not indoctrination. And I think constantly, time and time again, more and more people can see that there's a problem with this, that, I mean, all you have just, elevating education and saying look education should be about education that's what it should be about i think the you know it's a simple message simple and as, it's yeah. one that makes sense you know it's, people don't want their kids being indoctrinated by this stuff whether it's you know trans ideology or whether it's you know stuff on race or whatever it is or environmentalism you know geography is essentially turning into a kind of environmental miserableism about you know how we've destroyed the planet and so on um so you learn less and less that's useful in terms of knowledge and you be, get more and more a kind of politicized dogma uh fill in the hole and it's uh, it's a tragedy for education at both the school and university level now scottish union for education dot substack dot com dear listener get on there scottish union for education dot substack dot com let me just read you a couple of quick comments Stuart you always um rile them up but in a good way Jacob says my friend's daughter wanted to study medicine at King's College but was not given a place on the course due to her father having a degree if that's true that's shocking that that's disgusting. What she's supposed to do. I mean, it must must be a great thing to go where mum or dad graduated. I mean, God. Um, Chris says, I've seen a couple of oh, yeah, that's about something else. Um, let me see, because there, there were loads on this. Backbeat says, Stuart's theory about conspiracy theories is interesting, but history does, doesn't history prove that everything is subject to theory until it is proven? There is, he says, however, conspiracy fact. That much is irrefutable. That's a backbeat. Loads and loads of these messages on this. I really appreciate the comments. Thanks for sending them in. Uh, you know you're welcome back here anytime, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. You're one of the few academics that has the courage to come on here. Most of the time when I ask them to come on, they say, and they do, and I've got the emails to prove it. Richie, it's not you. It's some of the guests you've had in the past. And I think, 
don't do that. Yeah, it's not yeah. good that you know stand up like you say but, um, can, I, but you, but you can, I, can I just say that thing about the, um, someone saying about their daughter I think it was yeah Ed, Edinburgh University right so what, what are the other things they're trying to do is um, trying to get more working class people into university so this has become another group right now one lovely thing that's fine but another lovely thing well actually you should be getting people into university who are the best people for university that's the point right? yeah and if if that's a problem with working class kids, you should look at schools and say, we need to sort schools out, right? Because schools are garbage and they're not teaching working class kids like they should do. Edinburgh University, um, I think I think it was last year, it was either last year or the year before, the, their entire cohort of students in law had to be from what they would describe as a deprived background. Every single student, every one of them, right? So if you were a middle-class student or even not seen as coming from the correct postcode, you'd studied, you'd busted your balls. Edinburgh was the, you know, it's a great law place and all the rest of it. You'd strive and, and you'd got these great grades. You couldn't get in, couldn't get into university. So you've got this really bizarre thing happening. Yeah, now that's amazing. Where middle-class middle parents are starting to take their kids out of private school for the final year, or even moving to postcode areas for the year when their kids going to apply to university, because they know they've got a much better chance of getting in if they're from a correct postcode or they don't come from a private school. So even though they might be the best students, right, who are really smart and could be brilliant lawyers or brilliant scientists or wherever it is, universities are starting to do stuff like this. As it happens, Edinburgh, the backed off and said we think we got this wrong yeah I, I, <laughs> surprise surprise um but yeah so it, it's a, a, a universities are very curious organizations at the minute that seem to be trying to follow social justice ideals rather than the ideals they should be following which is actually let's get the best students possible and advance knowledge and you know let's move society forward well there's a few of you left that are standing up to it scottish union for education.substack.com Stuart, as usual thanks for your time pleasure cheers and speak soon as uh, Stuart wait and folks I'll, I'll say it again scottish union for education.substack.com the time is nearly four minutes past the hour of six o'clock i'm richie allen your bbg it's great to um be with you i'm sending Stuart a quick thank you message you might have done that richie when you took a tune i wanted to do it quick because he gets off quick um Patrick Walsh, Kilkenny, in a few minutes. You do not want to miss that either. Uh, your comments, I will read some of them when I come back from this, from Robbie Williams. Let's hope I can play it this time. Go on then, Robbie. That's the one. You're Rich Allen, your Monday's programme, the 5th of June, 2023. Come on, hold my hand. I want to contact the Music from Robbie Williams, seven minutes past the hour of six o'clock. Monday's programme, The Richie Allen Show. Giovanni De Stefano will be on the programme tomorrow. Manana. Check out his uh, documentary or the documentary about him on Sky. Jim Sheridan is currently shadowing Giovanni De Stefano in Italy. He's making a film about him. As a devil's advocate, one of the strangest, weirdest uh, stories you'll ever in come across encounter. He was a regular guest on my evening show during my days on the radio in Spain and I came to like him. Um, but uh, that is in no way now meant to trigger or to upset 
his victims at all. We'll be talking about uh, his convictions tomorrow on the programme and his time in the law and the extraordinary things um, that that he was involved in over 35, 40 years. Giovanni De Stefano, extended conversation with him tomorrow. He's actually a good guy, you know, in spite of what he's done or alleged to have done. And um, is very thick-skinned. You can't really rattle him, which is um, no bad thing. Let's welcome our next guest to the programme. I'll shut up rambling on. I'm very proud of him. I really am. I don't know him. We haven't spoken. But I'm proud of him. I'm proud of anybody back home who's attempting to put a bit of a stumbling block or a roadblock in front of the tyranny that seems to be, I don't know, Ireland seems to me in the last couple of years, it's almost like a kind of a test case for the architects of tyranny. It seems that when an idea is, when a conclusion is arrived at, boy, let's call them globalists then, just like Stuart did a moment ago. It seems like Ireland lately is the first, you know, to experience it. We know what's going on in the country with um, completely uncrolled, uncontrolled immigration, the gaslighting of Irish people who are asking questions about it. Ireland was a pretty horrendous place to be during the COVID lockdowns as well. And one man has been doing a lot of work, Patrick E. Walsh, and he's written about this extensively, and he's done some stellar work looking into excess death numbers in Kilkenny, where he, he, he comes from, where he hails from, but also the country. He um, he can be read at patrickewalsh.substack.com. Do check him out there, patrickewalsh.substack.com. Let's well, welcome back. Welcome back. What's wrong with me? For the first time, let's welcome Patrick Walsh. Patrick, welcome to the programme. How are you? And he should be there, but he's gone. He's muted, I think. Ah, you you muted yourself momentarily. I'm not not great on the tech, as as anyone tries to interview finds out. Uh, But uh, we we can hear each other now. We can hear each other loud and clear. I'm going to turn you up a little bit here while, uh, while, while we chat. So I'm the latest victim then of the Patrick Walsh failure to understand tech. I'm a bit useless myself, Patrick, when it comes to it. But listen, you're you're welcome and. Um, stellar work on the Substack account. You're an excellent writer. What is it with Substack? Now, I don't know an awful lot about your background, but I read people on Substack and I'm amazed by the quality of the writing. And, and most of the time when I look into their backgrounds, no um, academic qualifications in literature or any of that. They're just bloody good writers. What is it? Well, I, I think you just said it, Richie, because people with a maybe a creative flair are just something inside them, but they can't make a living out of it. So they go off and they get their ordinary jobs and their whatever they are, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. And in the background, they're still doing this stuff, bit of writing, review and stuff, but there's no, there was no way of getting it out there. So Substack comes along and uh, you basically can set up your own publishing thing and you can charge for it if you want. If you don't want it, that's okay too. I, I, I got the inspiration from, from um, well, John Waters through hearing him, him putting stuff out there, and that's how I was introduced to it. And yeah, I just decided to put my own stuff there. I, I was getting stuff published with KilkennyPress.ie to do with the the excess debts, and I just decided I'd take it a bit of further because that was just facts and figures, which is fine and that's important. And you don't want to be dressing that up in fancy stuff and people losing sight of what's the really important thing is there. But there's other ways of getting um, uh, the truth out as well. And you can, you can write about it well and make it presentable for people and they can enjoy it, but they also get in the message, which is the most important thing. Yeah. Tell us about pre-lockdown. I'm fascinated by, because 
I've met so many people now in the last three years and not that I'm I'm not the best in the world to know what's going on around the world I'm not but names like that I wouldn't have heard before and I think this is fantastic uh, my, my first instinct is what was the mindset of Patrick Walsh pre-COVID were you somebody who was aware that we were going down a kind of a totalitarian path before COVID or was COVID the 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 moment for you that, that awakened you to, to, to the possibility that things are not exactly okay? Well, from the very start, I didn't buy into the COVID thing. I just, I just had a gut instinct. I'd stopped following mainstream news, radio, TV, a couple of years before that because, uh, you know, I, I knew it was, it was filling up your life with nonsense as well as being, you couldn't trust it. Now, that doesn't mean I, I, th- I saw the road we were going to go down. I did not. I just knew the COVID stuff was nonsense. And I called it out from the very start with people around me. And, of course, I was ignored and whatever. So you, you learn to kind of self-censor. And I just went about my thing, you know, like, I, I won't say I never wore a mask because there was probably a couple of occasions I had no choice but to put on for, you know, family members around, just not to be making them uncomfortable. But I, I, I had plenty of confrontations with uh, what I call the high-vis Hitlers. And, you know, I stood up to him and I mimicked him and I made fun of him. But I did not see this three years ago, March 2020. I did not see where this was going. No, no I, I can't. I wish I could claim that I did. But here we are now. And uh, I, I don't have any doubt that we, we've got there. And that was the start. Yeah. None that of it. The, that was it. And the ball was thrown in. And yeah. here we are. None, none of us knew, like even those of us that were making programs talking about how things were going to become dystopian and how life would be more controlled. We didn't see that happening in, in that way. I mean, we knew something was coming, but nothing like that. And like yourself, I was aghast and appalled and sickened by the acquiescence of people to it, particularly the NHS claps that went on here, even in Salford, to see people standing on their doorstep on Thursday like idiots clapping, you know, into the nothingness, clapping into the empty air. It was all mad stuff. So I, I completely empathise with that. But I want to talk, because we're already at 14 minutes past the hour, I want to talk about excess death numbers. Because this is, this is where we can really get into the nuts and bolts, really, because we talk a lot on this programme about COVID jab injuries. Are the jabs injuring people? Well, the reporting systems in the UK and in the United States of America appear to show, and the anecdotal evidence, appear to show that the jabs are causing widespread harm. Not to everybody, but to lots of people. But you... You did the journalistic thing. You said, well, let's have a look. Let's do a bit of digging into it and looking at the five-year average and the 10-year average. Tell us what you did, uh, Patrick, and tell us how you did it. Well, what I did... Uh, now, whether whether you can say, you know, people talk about causation, correlation and all that. That's an argument for another day, Richie. But what I did is I decided um, to investigate... You, you, in, in, in Ireland, there's a, a website called rip.ie where deaths are reported... And um, in real time, because as you know, Ireland, Richie, funerals are very important. And people, people want to know about when they're on and to offer condolences. Yeah. So this is a real life site. And the, the CSO, the Central Statistics Ireland, has done their own investigation into how the RIP.ie ties up with their figures. And they take out duplications and do a bit of cleansing. There, there, is, this, there is more or less no difference. And they are happy to say that. They've done the investigation themselves and it's on their website. So what I decided to do, I was well aware getting emails from RIP.ie that 
dead figures were going up into Kenny. And I also saw in the alternative media people talking about it. So I, I decided I would investigate starting from July 22. Uh, and I went four months first. I would investigate the deaths in Kilkenny. And I, I basically, I, I sorted by Kilkenny. I took out any duplications and I made no other changes to the data set because the, anything else changing it would be manipulating the figures. And that would mean there was people who died in, in England who would put a post in, in if they were from Kilkenny. And that's okay. That would happen every year. So that's what I did. And I, I started comparing the figures. And um, I just did it for first, the first, I did it for four months and I compared it for 2019, 2020, and 2021. And the first figures I came up with for them four months. Now, I, I know it's a small amount, but it, it indicated what was going on. It showed a 30% increase on 2019. In other words, I'm looking at the figure here. There was 326 Kilkenny deaths in four months in 2022, July to October. And the equivalent figure in 2019, which is obviously pre-COVID, was 250. That's 30% extra. And st straight away, you're looking at, okay, there's something strange going on here. And that's, that's what started for me. And I, I started, I went further in it then. What I, I, I used to do, there'd be notices, and people would say if they died suddenly or unexpectedly, and now, and I understand this is more subjective. Like in the, in the deaths, these people are dead. There's no arguing about it. In the suddenly and unexpected, there's a bit of subjectivity in it because they, it'll specifically say it or else you'll go into condolences and you can see it's a young person in the picture and someone will say, I'm shocked by the sudden death of so-and-so. But I, I understand, you know, people come back to me, oh, that's very subjective. It's not. If you apply it consistently, um, you know, you, you can compare like with like. And I, and I got unbelievable figures when I, when I did it on the sudden deaths. I was showing 120% increase compared to 2019. Now, percentages can be misleading on a small base. So I'll just give the, the, the figures for suddenly and unexpected in 2019 were 24. And for the four months to 2022 was 53. So I know 120% can sound massive, but it, it's, um, it was an extra 29 people, basically double. You know what should be expected. Who died suddenly? Um, these were these were not people who were gravely ill and were known to be about to pass away. These were people who died all of a sudden. Yeah, and but what's important? This this dice is, is self describing. It's not me, you know, doing it. I I wasn't making it up. These were these were saying in their in the funeral notice. So and so died suddenly or unexpectedly. And I mean, it could be someone in their seventies, but I mean, people in their seventies die unexpectedly and um that can happen too yeah you know so i wouldn't it doesn't just all young people uh, are certainly you know, people in their 70s are entitled to a, a, a life expectantly and if they die unexpectedly then then it's noted and as well as that there, there will be i suppose maybe an argument to be made that some of these sudden deaths may well have been people who had underlying conditions that were ignored when the irish health service became just like the health service here became a COVID only health service so some of those people might have been people with you know heart disease who maybe could have been helped if they had been looked at so I know you would acknowledge this and I know you have acknowledged this before but still even if you factor out that and if you factor out those who might have been a bit old you're still left with a lot of extra people who would otherwise expect to be around you'd expect them to be around looking at the figures over previous years so there's something worth yeah. really investigating there, Patrick. Yeah, the, the, I, Richie, I have no problem with that. That, that is the truth. 
And um, I don't know if you're aware of uh, Igor Tudov, he's a Russian mathematician. And again, he's not working from a medical side, he's working from analyzing figures. He came up at one stage that he, you know, just looking at the figures in Europe, that um, he expected, about, he said about 49% can be linked uh, to, the, to the vaccine. Now, again, you're talking about correlation and, and whatever, and, and people say it's not causation. But these are the, you know, if you look at stuff like this, it's jumping out of you in figures. Yeah. And what you have to say is, why, why, why are the authorities ignoring it? Wouldn't you think the first thing they'd say is, you know something? Stop the jabs. Or Patrick Welsh, you know, you might have a point there. Let's, let, let's, let's investigate them. Now, we had our Taoiseach, a man who a lot of Irish people don't have a lot of time for at the moment, who got up in the doll and asked the CMO, the chief medical officer, to go off and investigate the excess deaths. Now, we haven't, this is on the 1st of February, because work from me and other people was putting pressure on the mainstream newspapers. Now, our chief medical officer hasn't said a word since about these matters. And, you know, if, if it even was to come back and say, listen, we, we found what the reason is, nothing to worry about. Wouldn't you think they do it? But they can't do it. And we're all left hang, hanging here. What's going on? Wondering I mean, what's going on. I, Isabel yeah. has been in touch. Lots, un, unsurprisingly, lots of interest in this. Isabel has been in touch to say suicides will be in some of those numbers as well. And of course, tragic, no, uh, no suicides, uh, really, no. No, well, I, I want to make clear, if it was quite obvious, sometimes we mentioned our suicides or anything like that, car accidents, they, I left them out. Well when done. I knew, when I could see specifically that, um, I, but she, she is right, there could be a suicide in there that you wouldn't know of. But sometimes people would say um, flowers for palliative care or um, make donations to the Samaritans. And in, in cases like that, I would leave those debts out. So I made an effort to, to, to highlight, to leave out debts like that. Well, that's good journalism, my friend. That's the way it should be, right? So um, you mentioned there about um, about the lack of interest in this by the authorities. And this is the same everywhere. And, and the, ma- the mathematician you mentioned is a credible academic. And oh, yes. he, he's coming from a fairly, I would say, kind of purely scientific kind of dispassionate approach, just looking at the numbers, crunching the numbers. And he reckons, because I did read this, it's, it's shocking really, that nearly half of these deaths might be attributable to the jabs. Well, he says there's a, there, there's a strong correlation. Yeah. Which in, in normal, you know, in normal circumstances, that's where you look for, uh, is there a causation? That's your first place you look. Because it's happening in the Western world where, where we've had strong vaccine vaccination and it's not just happening in Ireland. So there's something that has happened in the Western world to cause these sudden deaths to increase and excess deaths to increase. And there's only one jumping out of the figures. And that's what should be investigated first. And if, and if they can find that it's not the vaccine, well then, okay, we'll move on. Let's find what it is. Find out what it is, yeah. And just that mention of suicide. We know that the the imposition of lockdowns on its own has led to a huge spike in the number of suicides. So even leaving the jabs for a minute, we'll obviously come back to the jabs straight away. But um, that, that's something that's worth mentioning. People committed suicide in the last three years. Some of them maybe were mentally ill and were unwell for a long time. But we know that many young people um, had their worlds turned upside down by lockdowns and took their own lives. And that's to me, that's equally as terrible and tragic and avoidable as the deaths from the vaccines themselves 
I would argue, Patrick. Richie, I agree with you 100%. To, to try and dismiss it, that's like that. Is, uh, you know, I understand what, what the caller was saying, and that's, that's fair enough. But I'm aware of in, in Kenny, a few people like that. Um, you know, you, you never know what the last thoughts of people in that circumstances are. But there's, the su- there's been quite a few suicides. And again, people under pressure, people living at home, to, you know, on their own, and no, no social contact. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a mental health expert, but I mean, you can imagine yourself if you're struggling all along and you're told you can't go out and visit, yeah. you know, your, fr- you know if you, if friends, family, whatever. Where, where does that all end up? Where, where does that end up? I had, a message, I had a message last year from a lady and she asked me not to mention her name and not to even really mention the message, but I can, I can say it now, I suppose, it's been a year. But um, her old dad um, took his own life. He was in his late 70s. And he, all he had really was the Legion. So he'd go down the Legion and he'd have three pints of mild beer and play some dominoes. And this was all he had really. And she yeah. was living, she was living um, somewhere in Scotland. He was living in the Midlands. So she would see him once every couple of weeks. But he had a carer. And uh, so, of course, the carer was coming in with the mask. And then the carer changed somebody he didn't know to somebody who didn't really have any interest in him. And he was basically thrown there. And he couldn't go anywhere. And he said, enough's enough. And he had tablets to help him sleep. And he decided one night that was it. I can't live like this. And he took his own life. And again, I wonder how many more people in that situation thought, well, this is basically prison. I'm not going to live like this. And and, and took their own lives. Terrible what, what, what happened. And, you know, it's interesting. Just before we come back to the jabs, are, are you interested today across the Irish Sea there in learning about the Johns Hopkins University study, which is big news, but it isn't really being picked up. It reckons that lockdown only saved about 1,700 lives, if that, but that the impact of lockdown otherwise was um, was terrible, that it may well have killed many tens of thousands of people. I wonder, should we, should we get, I don't mean get excited because that's not the correct term, but should we be somehow optimistic that some of this stuff now is starting to uh, break the surface? What do you think? Um, I'm naive. I, I was optimistic, Richie, a while back. Uh, Asim Malhotra was involved in was a down in South Africa where there's going to be a judicial review of the Pfizer vaccine being used down there. And I was very positive when all that started coming out. And I and I heard it was being followed up in America too. I, I just, I just. I'm getting a little bit. Uh, look, I, I we know what went on, but I think we're being drip drip fed a lot of stuff. And ordinary, you know, there's a there's a certain ten or fifteen percent will not listen to no matter what report comes out, Richard. Yeah, you're unless right. Unless they hear it on the RTE news or the BBC news, admit it, and that's, that's a fact. But there's a lot of people in the middle who were duped, and feel guilty and scared for their futures, and you know something they don't want to hear anymore. They want to close their ears, they want to close their eyes, and they just want to get on with their lives and hope they haven't done damage to themselves and to, and to each other. And that's why it's important for the likes of me, you, and other people who, who, are, who are fighting this fight for a long time. I mean, I, I look back to when you and John, John Walsh were broadcasting uh, from England, and I was, get, I was getting into here in Ireland, when, when there was no one really talking about this stuff. And it, it reminded me, I'm a great studier of World War II, uh, of when Charles de Gaulle was broadcasting from London to the Free French, and I had that sort of feeling about the thing, and we, 
we, we can't we can't let this go richie i mean uh, the, those studies are great and they're fine and but the people who need to hear them are closing their ears and their eyes to them and, and it's a good point you're just, making there you drip feed some of this stuff out and it might calm some people down like that we, we talk about on the program the release valve so you use yeah. this information and while while we're talking about that, and I'm guilty of this, we should be talking about what you came on to talk about. Because while you're saying, right, so John Hopkins, so this is good now, so they might not they might not lock down ever again. We might be safe from lockdowns. The fact is they're still giving these jabs to people. And they're killing people. Oh, that's, and they're harming that's, people. That's, yeah. I mean, we, we, in December 21, you know, we were very close to, they were going to uh, enforce a mandate. And uh, they were going there. There was no doubt about it. They, they were pre-programming the, the people by, you know, people discussing it, the Minister Donnelly, Virat, and all these people come saying, saying we might have to do this. And you know how the media works, Richie. This is pre-programming. So when it comes, the the ordinary NPC has already has it in their head. Ah, oh, sure, look, they have to do what they have to do. Do it for the public good. Were you really nervous now, when you were hearing the talk about the mandate? Did you think, shit, this might happen here? Well... Uh, Richie, you know, was I concerned about myself? Not in the slightest. No, not no, yourself, but, no, but but just for everybody else. I mean, because if it had come in, like you can't go to school if you're not vaxxed or you can't turn up to work. I mean, you said it yourself. Millions would have taken it. Yeah, and 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 I think 95% of the Irish adult population took the first two doses. So, I mean, they, they were sleepwalked into it. They, they didn't have to mandate it. Now, they tried yeah. to pick off the other 5%. Uh, you know, and I was in that five percent, and I knew very few people that weren't vaccinated, Richie, and didn't go and get them, and that's the truth. And family members got it, and you know, friends got it, and and uh, so there's it's they didn't have to push a mandate in Ireland. They they found they could get the ninety five, and the other five percent would would have caused so much trouble to try and get us. I mean, they would have had to pin me to the ground. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that, you know, that, that that's the way it would have been. They they decided yeah we won't we won't go there and then the Ukraine war psyop came along and they had no choice but to drop it because if they were going to allow in uh, all these refugees they would have to um, you know test them for their vaccination status and whatever so that was never going to happen. Tell, tell me so, this uh, first of all, Patrick. Let me just remind listeners we're speaking to Patrick Walsh, Patrick E Walsh. Letters from Desolation Row. That's the Substack account. It's patrickewalsh.substack.com. Do go and read it. It's brilliant. It's very well written and thought-provoking and challenging and you can share it with people. Subscribe to it. Just put your email in and subscribe to it and when Patrick writes and posts it'll come straight into um, your inbox. Do you... Not, you don't have to obviously give you know explicit details but are there people in your own circle who have had an injury from one of the jabs of any sort? Um... Yeah, I think there's one, there's one, whether they would admit that it was from it or not, uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, there, there was, the right, I'd rather not talk about it, Richie. Because, no, no, I get you, I get you, yeah. Um, I, I do, I know a few. has now come around by way of thinking and uh, through my writing. I, 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 a lot of my writing was, you see, yeah, you have a problem, Richie. You cannot sit down. I'm just an ordinary Irish person. And start dictating to friends and families, saying, "I know better than you yeah. about this. Do not." So my my way of, of approaching this was, I wrote about it. I put facts and figures out there. I would be known as an ordinary person, but a sober-minded and not, you know, out there looking for attention. So 
when I, I was putting this out through kilkennypress.ie and through Substack later on, you know, friends and family members were reading it and they were going, you know, it made them think and come around, you know, someone will come around to my way of thinking now. And that's, that's a positive for me. I mean, these are people in my family and yeah. the, that, that was my, but if I had on the kitchen table and say this stuff, it's not as easy as that because it's, you know, we're, we're just all on the same level. Why, why should they believe me? I know this. But, but the fact yeah, that I put well. these figures out there and writing about it, allowed them to stay back and, and, and be, be objective about what I was saying. And I think that helped. No doubt about it. And I'm sure through the kilkennypress.ie and through the Substack, you've given more than enough people, I think, maybe a moment of pause and maybe maybe they reconsidered having follow-up jabs because for me, you, know, I, you try to be as objective as you can, but the evidence is overwhelming. The jabs are very, very harmful. And we know through very, very basic research that in the recent past when a jab was uh, believed to be causing harm it was immediately suspended you only have to look at the um, the pandemics jab in the late 2009 the pandemics for swine flu which was harming people they immediately suspended it you go back to the 1970s there was a swine flu jab in the US there were a handful of deaths and injuries and they stopped it straight away um, we, we have maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe, globally, maybe many more than hundreds of thousands of injuries, not always fatalities, but injuries. And like you said, Patrick, you can't get a politician in our country in in any sort of serious position. You can't get a, a TD to say, listen, folks, uh, you know, these jobs are, are causing widespread harm. You've seen what happened to um, uh, the British MP, the Tory MP, who decided that he would questioned the safety of the COVID jabs um, before he knew it, he was turfed out of the Conservative Party in a heartbeat. That sends a message, that. Well, that's, I mean, Andrew Bridgen uh, has, has, is, is a fantastic man. I don't know, you know, I actually don't know his personal story, but what he's done has stood up there and what he's taken, the brick bats that have been thrown on is unbelievable. But I'll just give you an example of what happened here with my local councillors. Uh, I contracted all my local councillors. First, f- five, uh, there's six in my local area, Thomastown, and I sent them all the information. They were the original people that got it. And then I sent it a week later to every county council in Kilkenny. I think there's, I don't know, 30 something. Now, three of them subsequently contacted me. And uh, I think I, I, I'm happy enough to mention names, you know, I can back up anything I'm saying, Richie. So, you know, don't, don't get worried about that. Uh, uh, anyone, you know, they'll chase me, they won't go after you. But, um, I, I feel uh, I don't know if you're aware of politicians are there's a councillor in Kilkenny called Andrew McGuinness. No, I wouldn't have a clue and, uh, now about local politicians back home, so no, yeah. But he's the son of John McGuinness, who would be a big fan of all TD, right? Uh, and uh, generally, uh, and who has done, done a lot of good work for Kilkenny and nationally by questioning the things in the past. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about it. But Andrew, after he got my email contacted me and uh, basically wanted to know, he, quiz, he quizzed me about it and, uh, he, you know, he actually brought up me, did I, did I think it was the vaccines and uh, that he, he thought that, would, that might be a problem and I, I said, at that time I wasn't saying anything about vaccines but since he brought it up I said, yes, I, I do think it's a problem. So straight away, to fair, to fair play to him, through his um, father's uh, doll questioning procedure, he was able to question the Minister Donnelly about the excess death figures that I had published. Now, within two days, 
after a, a reply came back from Minister Donnelly, who was the health minister in Ireland and still is, from his private secretary, who was Fiona Conroy. I'm looking at the printout of it here. Now, I got a copy of it. It wasn't sent to me directly, but someone gave it to me. And basically, they have a load of figures linked to the Central Statistics website, and they have all the figures for 2018, 19, 20, 21, going back to 2007 deaths. Now, then they give the figures for two quarters in 2022, and they link to the CSO website. Now, when, you, when I go to the CSO website and I add those figures up, it comes to 410. What they wrote in the reply was 310. Conveniently, 100 was left out of the total. But by doing that, it made it look like there was no excess deaths in Kilkenny. Right, right, yeah. Now, this was sent out by the, and I'm looking at it, I have a copy here and I have the email address. Now, maybe it was a mistake and maybe it wasn't, but it was very convenient. But it was sent out and the person who got it was, it was deliberately given to them. They passed it on to me to say, so they would stop publishing my stuff because they were saying, Patrick White has made a mistake, he's wrong. Now, I was able to find, dig in and find that I was still right. I'd so, you know, there was something wrong here. And uh, when I found that they'd left out 100 deaths, um, you know, the, the person still kept listening to me and backed me. They, 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 you know, what, what I'm talking about here is Jimmy Raskin of Kilkenny Press, who was, who was backed this the whole thing from the start. And I wouldn't be talking to you without him, Richie. And it's important to, that, I, that I acknowledge that the contribution he's made to all this. Uh, I get a lot of interviews and people talking to me and, you know, tell me what I'm grateful for doing this and that and the other. But that, that's fine. But one man stood up, a journalist in Kilkenny for 50 years plus, retired, but he, but he, had a, he has a, a, a website, kilkennypress.ie, and he staked his reputation on this. And that takes a lot of bravery. And, yeah, uh, and, because uh, we're, we, we, we are in the era now where publishers and people with websites, they're running a million miles away from anything like this because of the uh, the fear of the inevitable backlash. But he's he, he stood up for you and stood by you. That's really important, that. But but just back to that, like omitting 100 deaths. Look, I can't say for sure because I don't I wasn't there. I don't know. But yeah. I, 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 I'd be sceptical that it was a mistake. I'd be dubious. Oh. To, you know, it's a very convenient mistake to make when you're putting stuff it's in the public convenient. domain. Yeah, but uh, I, I just uh, I, I continue on with that. I mean, and I thought, uh, like I spoke to Andrew, and he was very, very pleasant guy. And I know politicians have to be nice and do their talking, but I, I was convinced he, he was genuine in what he was going to follow up here, and I, I have no doubt that he was at the start. But I, I contact loads of contact him subsequently, and he's basically just done nothing since. He told me he was going to follow up with the minister, and uh, he didn't. I had a phone call with him, um, and he's just, he's opted out. This is the journey uh, now you're on, you see. You're on a yeah. journey now that I had 10, 15 years ago, because I, I had these situations too, passing information to politicians, be they TDs or councillors, be they MPs in the UK, still in some of that old mindset that, you know, they're decent or some of them are decent. And it never happens. And eventually, it it you know it it dawned on me that um, we'll never make any changes through the political system. That ultimately, when these guys come up against a little bit of opposition, in other words, yeah. leave that alone. I, I was, leave it alone. I, I was just just an addendum to that, Richie. And it, it's important that I, I I want to be fair to Andrew McGuinness and and because he did that was a big thing when that happened. That that got a lot of news out there. I wasn't on Twitter at the time. I I like I, I wasn't. But but it got out there through my through 
Twitter.ie and people were spreading it on Twitter that I had, I had no idea what was going on. But I was talking to someone last weekend at the Tua de Donna Festival. Um, I, I won't mention their name. And, uh, but what he said to me, he thinks what happened is after, after what happened, with my pointing this out, that the Fianna Fáil minute, uh, TDs and county councillors were told to shut up and not yeah. to engage with me or anyone else on this subject. Of course, that's what happened to Bridgen. Yeah, br- the, 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 once Bridgen was fired, the whip would have gone, to, individually would have gone to the Conservative MPs in Westminster and said, listen, enough of this nonsense now. Don't be entertaining guys like that. Conservative MP came on this programme back in 2020 and he was told he'd be kicked out of the party if he came back on. Don't talk to the independent media. So I have no doubt you're absolutely right. Um, I'm going to mention, because I want to talk a little bit about immigration before the end of the programme. Um, PatrickWatch.substack.com Letters from Desolation Row. Patrick did a stellar, like really, really good work, important work, on looking into excess death numbers in Kilkenny, you know, around COVID, around the vaccine rollout and, and thereafter, and was able to show that something was up something was properly up and needed to be investigated. And um, he's done a great job in getting that out there through the independent media, but it's uh, next to impossible to get the commercial media to pick it up or, you know, to get um, politicians to pick it up. So for more on that, go to Patrick Walsh, excuse me, patrickewalsh.substack.com, patrickewalsh.substack.com. Do you feel with recent kind of high-profile examples of people back home standing up um, for themselves and taking a stand against their communities, which are heavily under-resourced anyway, because uh, going back years, because of underinvestment and and um, resources being cut left, right, and centre, and then people come in uh, to their communities. Irish people come in and say, "Right, we are going to bring three hundred people in here, and we're going to house them, and you're just going to like it." And Irish people say, "Well, this is not good for us. It's not good for." Our prospects, it's not good for, you know, access to doctors, healthcare, one thing and another, because again, it's terribly underfunded. We don't think this is a good idea. What are you doing? And then those people are, I can't, I, I don't have the language to describe because it's so awful. They're called names, they're labelled, they're mocked in the media as crazy, right wing, hateful racists when I, there was never any racism in Ireland. It feels to me like Ireland's a bit of a basket case at the moment, Patrick. On, on Richie, go ahead. Richie, this is um, we are living in original nut house. This is one flew over nest, you know, mixed in with any of the craziest movie you ever saw in your life. I, I sometimes I, I don't even know what to say. I've been called more names lately. You know, I'm a racist. I'm a xenophobe. I'm a this, that, and the other. And you've just pointed it out. I mean, the simple phrase. Ireland is full, says it all. It's not about is there space to put these people. We don't have facilities to educate them. Our health service was an absolute joke for the last 20 years anyway. It couldn't even look after ourselves. We don't have spaces to house them. And like there's, there's this figure of 10,000 um, Irish uh, you know, homeless, that, that figure is understated, Richie, because there's, there's mar- married families living at home in their, their parents' house because they can't get on housing this because yeah. they're they're unfortunate enough to have a job, you know, make a living for themselves. So it means that they can't you know, they can't get on housing this and this, that and the other. That's so really that, interesting that's what you said there. That's really interesting. So there are people, even married people, who are sofa surfing because 
they can't afford a deposit just to even get a rental house because rentals are so expensive but also they can't possibly get a mortgage so they might be staying with um, one of the couple's parents that's that's i've not that hasn't hasn't occurred to me that's akin to homelessness it of course it is yeah, yeah. but i mean like the greatest uh, stat figure jugglers in the world are the irish uh you know the irish civil service they they they're so mediocre they're they're so against the Irish people, they treat us with contempt. I mean, if you try to find out how many, you know, the real unemployment figures in Ireland, it's a joke because there's so many people on disability, so they don't count as if they're unemployed. But then we're told, you know, unemployment is very low. But uh, see, they, everything is disguised, Richie, in in, in stats and this, that, and, other. and uh, you know, a whole figure. You could go to Dublin and probably 10,000 families living with our, with parents who are having the hope of getting a house and definitely having the hope of buying a house of getting a rental or anything like that and can you the mental strain of that just, just think about that richie yeah. you have a family in rowan you're in your 30s you might have two children or something like that and you see no prospect it's one thing to do for six months knowing that you're going to get out and find your own place the mental strain on that on, on people must be terrible and the only people i'm concerned about here is is Irish people like like that? We we have to look after our own first, and if we can do more, we will. The Irish people have always done that. Look at our charitable donations over the years; we're up on the top. Always, we always, have. always, yeah. When they and, when they do these um, charts, when uh, they often do them in the Times, funnily enough, you know, per, per European country, the individual con- contributions made by individual people to charities, Ireland is always up at the top or around the top. We've always been a charitable people. That's a fair point. Yeah, and and uh, Irish people are very, that, that, they would be so hurt and they won't stand, a lot of people won't stand up for themselves to, to have the word racist said to them. And uh, like, I'm strong enough to take it and look people in the eye and say, have you got any more to back that up? Yeah. Like I was called a xenophobe the other night for just talking about, you know, how we're we going to educate all these people coming in. A person, I was at the where we got our festival up there, and they called me. You're a xenophobe. You're a racist. It. I just started speaking to him maybe five minutes before that, and trying to discuss how we're going to house, educate, and medically look after all these people coming into our country. The and racism. No. They are or where they're coming from. Of course, it doesn't. The racism accusation is to get out of jail card. It's to shut the discussion down because what follows is, I don't debate or I don't discuss with racist when when you're saying look i you don't know me i'm clearly not racist i am asking what impact is this going to have on a creaking system to begin with creaking is putting it mildly a system that's collapsed in ireland because of underinvestment and because of mismanagement you want to bring in thousands of people and you think it's a good idea but of course there, there isn't a counter-argument to that. There isn't a legitimate counter-argument, Patrick. So the easy way to shut that conversation down is to say, you're a disgusting racist. Well, full stop. Game over. No more conversation, right? It, it, it is with a certain number of our people because they will back down. And, uh, you know, we, I understand that to a certain degree. But the, the fact when they... That's... Jim, uh, that's their trump card but not only is it their trump card it's their only card so when you stand there and do a follow-up question most of them they haven't a word to say no. but you're right they use that as oh, no, I'm, going, I'm not going to talk to a racist but they know and i know what's going on 
that, that, that uh, they're just throwing that out there instead of debating the proper situation of what happened, what's happening in our country. And uh, Are you optimistic, Patrick? Just, just be, I'm, I'm mindful of time here because um, time does tend to fly by when you're having a chat. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, stimulating and interesting. When, I mean, I don't know, the, the more, I don't like, you see these confrontations, you see these morons who claim to be Antifa or claim to be anti-fascist or whatever. Um, and it's negative in that. But at the same time, I think it kind of compels the national media to focus on it. And I wonder, will that lead to some sort of stirring of sentiment amongst the Maybe the silent majority, because I think the majority of people in Ireland feel like you feel and are scared of what might happen to them if they enter into this discussion about why are you bringing so many people into the country. But I think when the more that RTE, the national broadcaster, the more the Irish Times does it and covers this stuff and calls people like you all manner of ridiculous names, I wonder is that leading to some sort of a stirring Kind of a kind of a rumbling amongst the silent majority. I think it's possible. It, it, Richie, it has. There's no doubt about it. The, the Sunday Business Post did a poll. I think in, it was in the last two weeks, definitely. And they be, they had a 75 percent response by people saying that Ireland has taken in too many refugees. Yeah. Not that it might take in too many. Or it has done. Yeah. That has taken too many. Now you add, like that, that's a, f- a fact. And I don't know if you've heard this. We, we have a, a I, I, I don't know what way to describe this man, Drew Harass. He's a, was he a former member of MI5 or what the hell? But he's chief of our police force. And he, he came out the other day and there was, there was a, a protest group in, uh, outside a, a place that was going to be filled with refugees in Santry in Dublin, which is mainly populated by... Um, uh, elderly, the, the elderly people in that area, and he, he basically uh, insinuated that organised crime is connected to the protests against against ref, you know refugee centres and housing refugees, uh, and and of course he never stops talking about the far right, but the uh, the I mythical the mythical far right. I'd love to see one. <laughs> I haven't, I've never seen any Nazis around. I've Nazis never met any right. either. No. No, I never met, never met a Nazi in Ireland or somebody on the far right. We're a trade unionist, um, socialist people, really, who believe in doing right by other people and giving a, a hand to those who need it when it's possible. There, there is no far right. Can I, can I just finish that point, Richard? You can. Go I right think, back, yeah. I think you're right. There is a silent majority who, who agree with this situation, but the, the key word there is silent. And when it, and I'm I'm not giving out about these people, but they're silent until the likes of Faradkar and O'Gorman and our chief of police go on and basically say, if you identify with this, you are far right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they, they immediately shrink back in. And I can understand that. I've spoken to people like that, and I, I would give my points, and they, they'd say, yeah, I agree with you. But I know if it came up in a, in a conversation with someone else. They, they, it's not that they would go the opposite way; they would just stay quiet. Yeah. And so it's a silent, it's a silent majority, who are being beaten down by mainstream media, and it's constant far right, far right, far right, racist. And uh, but eventually, it loses those terms. Eventually, lose their impact, and you know the, the the what they inspire fear in people: the fear of being labelled equally. 
uh, to being labelled as you've been labelled, but eventually it loses its impact, I think, and there's nothing left for these people then. Patrick, we're just about to run out of time. I'm going to read a couple of comments. Some really interesting comments have come in before I do go, but I do want to mention Patrick E. Walsh.substack.com. It's a great Waterford name he has, by the way, the Kilkenny man there. I'm not going to get into that. I'll get I'll get murdered for saying that. Uh, Patrick E. Walsh.substack.com. Sure, half of Kilkenny worked in Waterford Crystal. And, uh, I know, Richie. No, no, they did. Came across the bridge, took our money, and then hammered our hurling teams. That's what he did. <laughs> they came and took our money and our women and hammered our hurling teams. So it's patrickewash.substack.com. Patrick, 30 seconds. I'll give you the final word. And thanks for your time today, buddy. Appreciate it. Richie, I, I just want to say thanks. Um, uh, two things happened. The, when the figures came out for 2022 last week, they were buried in the Irish media. And, and, and the same night, they forced their way into this place in Santry, Santry to accommodate un, undocumented, unvetted men. They are trying to destroy our country. If we, if we let it run for another nine months, it's irrecoverable. Yeah. Stand up and speak your mind. Well said, Patrick. Thanks for your time today, mate. Godspeed to you. Thanks a lot. And we'll talk again. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Cheers, Patrick. Patrick Walsh, live from Kilkenny. PatrickEWalsh.substack.com. Man who did a lot of great work, has, is doing. Uh, is doing now, but um, great work on the excess death numbers in Ireland post-introduction of the vaccines. Great stuff. Thanks to Patrick for that this evening. And there's just about time to read some comments. Craig makes a good point on the website that if you have a registered address, then you're not homeless. A point taken, Craig. Of course, you are right. The The point Patrick was making, and I sympathise with it, we're a people who were... It's almost in, in our DNA, you know, the the desire it's almost something that we can't control to own a property we're not unique like that but in europe as you will know people see property differently you know renting a property from the local authority is the done thing is the most common thing to do but in in our country you've you've got to get a house you've got to get a mortgage and um well, you're right to say registered address if you have a if you're staying with mum or dad or your mother-in-law or father-in-law then technically you're not homeless, yeah, but I, I, I still see the point he was making. You know, you don't have a place of your own, is effectively what he was saying. Thanks for the comment. Busy says, is this a gag? I'm not going to read that. <laughs> Brenda says, for me, the obvious way to find out definitively is make a comparative study of COVID vaxxed versus those who never received a single one. So far, in my encounters, it only applies to the vax. That's Brenda. Thanks, Brenda. Jenny says, I didn't bother contacting any politicians during the COVID scam because I know from past experience what a waste of time it is. I know people who did, though, and either they got no reply or they were sent a government handout, but none of their concerns were addressed at all. Thank you, Jenny. Remember the government mooted the possibility of sending persuaders door to door. Do you remember that? No, I'm not sure if that ever came to pass. But I read about this many times over a two-week period. It was talked about quite a bit in the national broadsheet media. There was a lot of talk about sending persuaders around. Somebody who would knock on your door and say, according to our records, you haven't had a COVID jab. And you would say, well, yes, that's right, but what business is it of yours? And they would presumably have said then, listen, um, we're here to, to to kind of talk about your concerns. Persuaders. I never met anybody who encountered a persuader. 
So I don't know. Listen, thank you for listening to us today. Thank you so much to Stuart Waiton in Air One and to Patrick E. Walsh in the Second Air. Monday's programme has come to an end. I'm back with you tomorrow with Giovanni De Stefano. It's going to be fascinating. Don't miss it Tuesday at five o'clock. That's tomorrow, Tuesday at five o'clock. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your Monday. It is Scorchio still in Salford. It seems to be absolutely beautiful. I've had the aircon on in the studio today. First time this year. The bloody aircon, eh? In this economy, running an aircon unit in this economy, can you believe it? Until tomorrow, bye.